I just wanted to thank you sincerely for participating in this interview. I'm delighted uh, to be here today. If it's okay with you, can you introduce yourself? Yep. So I am Dr. John Cruz. I'm a psychiatrist, an adult psychiatrist in San Francisco and have been for the last 26 years. I'm also a neuroscientist by training with a PhD in and I'm the author of a book, Recognizing Adult ADHD, What Donald Trump Can Teach Us About Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. That's awesome. Thanks. Um, I guess my first question to you is why exactly do you think that there are so many people with disabilities being served and not doing the serving? I'm not, how, somebody being. Why do you think? Like, why do you believe that there are so many people with disabilities um, being helped and served by um, therapists, psychiatrists, and other professionals and there are so few people with disabilities doing, actually doing the, the helping and the serving. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think part of it is that the organizations involved in this training and selecting who gets into programs for training, and you know, particularly I'd say medical school is among the most notoriously restrictive. Um, I think they do have their own biases against people who have apparent disabilities or obvious disabilities, but even disabilities that might not be physically apparent or visible still creates barriers, even among the helping professions who are professing to help you know, people overcome some of these barriers. I'd say some of the other aspects that may not be directly discriminatory is that many of the sort of official qualifications to get into such programs are more difficult to complete or check the boxes if you have disabilities or are neurodivergent or don't follow a completely normal regular pathway through school or other training. Um, so you, you might not even be in the applicant pool as it were. Um, but I think at least some organizations are trying to remedy what, you know, areas where they've been traditionally more discriminatory and trying to be open to the, the strengths and talents of more people. Do you believe that that, that, that exact um, 
mentality is going to um, be the the downfall of um, the the system that we use today for helping people with autism, with depression, and so on. Yeah, I, I mean, my belief how systems and history works is usually more sort of evolution and change rather than one thing gets completely destroyed and replaced by another. So I'd say, although there's still certainly huge amounts of progress to be made and room for improvement, I'm just looking at racial issues, I think. There's certainly fewer racial barriers and more welcoming people from a variety of races rather than just white people. And we can include gender as well as race rather than just white males. So the, the number of people getting into medical schools, the number of people who are trained therapists are, I mean, the, the, the field has progressed in those realms. And I think those are good models for allowing people in with more people with disabilities if, if they want to be part of those systems. I, I'd also point out that the other part of that is that there's certainly some people who have autism or have bipolar disorder or have other non-normative experiences who feel that the current systems are poorly, that they don't even want to be part of that. So that may actually diminish, again, the, the pool of potential people who want to be part of our current systems. That's an excellent answer. Um, what, what do you believe is the, would be the next um, steps in order to help um, educate people about psychiatry um, regarding allowing people with disabilities the, the chance to help e each other out instead of getting helped. Um, does, does that question make sense to you? So, I mean, one is, although I'm a member of the American Psychiatric Association, I'm, I, I don't have any, you know, positions or clout or haven't invested in sort of organizational psychiatry. I'd say one of the things, though, that, that organized psychiatry does is to promote other organizations, such as NAMI, which is the National Organization for Mental Illness, which is, you know, a, a non-professional organization of people with mental health conditions and their friends and families who are advocating for themselves. So that's a way that you know, organized mental health, organized psychiatry is working to help people who might normally be thought of as consumers of that system to have their own voice and to express their own needs and their desires and how to collaborate with professionals who are trying to help in that area. And I think Things along the lines of what we're doing right now is 
um, having interactions on social media, having, you know, writing books, giving talks, giving presentations, um, having discussion groups are another way to reduce some of the barriers that have been higher in the past between sort of a professional elite, as it were, and people who are receiving services from such groups or entities. I kind of feel like that often a a lot of people who don't understand people with disabilities um, or mental health issues they they don't take the time to to research the subjects instead they take time to um, stay stay away from the subjects and away from the people who have a disability or are, are depressed and so on. And I feel like often they're the ones that, um, and this is just my opinion. It's, it's my belief. It's not, it, it isn't fact or anything like that, but I think that often people who don't get to know people with disabilities and don't take the time to, to um, read books about the subjects um, are the ones who should do the opposite, actually, the most. Um, they're the ones that should research the subjects and do anything other than bully and mm -hmm. make fun of people with disabilities and so on. Um, would you agree with that or would you disagree with that? I'd agree with that. It's a good point. I, I think I'll start by putting it in an even bigger context. And that is what I see all the time is that when people are uncomfortable, so when they don't know what to say, whether it's dealing with someone in a wheelchair and they don't know how to, what's the proper thing to do, or, or other situations, people who are embarrassed tend to just hide and withdraw and, and pull back. So that includes, you know, dealing with disabilities. I don't think it's a healthy way we deal with it in society, um, but I think often the people who are feeling they're being avoided or shunned I mean, that's a separate issue from direct bullying. So often people who feel they're being abandoned or not responded to, to often take it as a personal attack on them. And again, I, I've certainly seen it with people with disabilities, but I see it in a much broader issue. Uh, one patient I'm dealing with, their father just died last week. And a few times they brought it up, they were met with silence and, and my interpretation is that people were just awkward. They didn't know what to say. They didn't know how to deal with it. They might have been afraid of making the person more upset or crying. They might have had their own issues about death or dying. But the response, rather than saying, you know, that's sad or tell me more or, or even I'm not talk comfortable talking about it, their just response was to not say anything and to, you know, pull back from the conversation, which left the person who was dealing with this issue feeling you know, have, have they done something wrong? Why were they being shunned or mistreated or 
I mean, they felt it was hostile, even though it, it isn't always necessarily meant as hostility by the people who are awkward. So I think over, you know, even a bigger issue is our society needs to get over being awkward and just being able to say, okay, this is uncomfortable. How can I communicate with you to make us both more comfortable? But as a society, we, we don't do a good job of that at all. But what would you say would is would you say that social skills plays a major role and part in um conveying and communicating to um, people that are dealing with grief, um, uh, negative emotions, um, and anything related to um, negative experiences um, that is that gives a lot of people issues with being there for for those kind of for those kinds of people um um what what I mean by that question is we, let's let's say that I was um that I recently had a death in my family and I was going to different therapists and trying to um, talk about my feelings about the subject and uh, would you say that not all therapists would have the the empathy and the people skills and social skills um, necessary um, and or would you say that some some therapists might but some therapists might not yeah I'd say any group of people it's hard to make generalizations about because there's going to be a range of capabilities and proclivities and talents and strengths. And a given person you know, might just be having a lousy day and respond more poorly. I mean, I would hope that most therapists, you know, at whatever level, whether they're a um, social work level or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, would have training and practice in dealing with issues or you know how to talk about something that's uncomfortable or unfamiliar or even potentially embarrassing but clearly all of them aren't always good at those things and and there are certain um, characteristics of, of interactions that may make some people more uncomfortable than others or more confused or just not knowing how to handle it and again even among therapists although i think many of them are better at sort of acknowledging I'm not sure how to proceed, what's comfortable with you. Some of them are sort of ashamed or embarrassed that here I'm supposed to be good at this and I'm not good. And and then, you know, sort of 
deteriorate the conversation or interaction by their own failure to not be able to reach out or acknowledge what they're not good at. Would you say that asking the client questions if you don't know what to say is it would be a good thing would be a good approach or a bad approach? I'd say in general it's a good approach. I've certainly had people on the other side of the issue and, and a good example is within the gay community. I've had many gay patients feeling that if they had to explain everything to a straight therapist, it was, you know, why am I spending my therapy time explaining things to you? And and I can hear, you know, similar things sort of getting back to your earlier question is why should the burden be on the person with a dis difference or disability, whether it's racial, whether it's autism, whether it's gender identity, you know, why shouldn't shouldn't the therapist be able to deal with that difference and understand that without the person having always to explain themselves? And I'd say maybe that's ideal, but given in society, unfortunately, the burden still is disproportionately. I'd say hopefully the disproportion is smaller, but there is a disproportionate burden on, on minorities, whatever the minority, to do more explaining than someone who is non-minority, and whether that's a disability or a race or sexual identity or others. But again, I hope the more we can have conversations about this, the less someone in any of these minority groups feels that the burden's all on them to explain everything. What kind of, what different types of creativities do you think is um, suggested and recommended for being a successful professional in the mental health depression um, uh, and overall helping other people um, in need field? That's a pretty broad question. I mean, I think some of what we've been talking about certainly is empathy and, and being able to try to the best from wherever you're sitting at what the other person is going through and what may be upsetting to them, what may be challenging to them, even understanding what's rewarding or positive to to them. So that's that's sort of an emotional strength in terms of being able to understand or learn or you know some of it is know ahead of time what that person may be feeling. I'd say curiosity is certainly important. You know, not feeling that you ever know entirely what the other person's going to be saying or thinking or feeling, but using your listening and your other aspects of it action to, to gather that information as a dialogue's unfolding. Um, what I um what I mean by creativity, I think, is um is it would you say it's important to um go with the go with the flow of um the session and conversation um that you're having and um, use the 
what you're learning as the, the session is, is going, or would you say it's important to um, use what you what you learned from your college days um, um, and go with the book knowledge you have um, or would you say that there's there's a balance to me it's always a balance and I mean the first sort of framework position is sort of a different framing of the customer's always right or the patient's always right and I would say I mean particularly you know I've dealt with delusional people who were sure that they were aliens from another planet or were you know, seven feet tall and they're five feet tall. And I mean, I'm not saying it's always useful to say, to confront them directly on their delusions, but it's also not helpful or useful to always just agree with them when what they're saying isn't seemingly in accordance with any reality we can measure and when their beliefs are likely to harm them or hurt them. So I'd, I'd say, you know, always you're hopefully combining what you've known and learned before you got into the session with what you're seeing right there when you're in the session with somebody. And if what you're seeing or hearing, you know, seems discrepant with the reality as you understand it, there should be sensitive ways to sort of check in or, or try to address, you know, that I can understand you're sincere in believing you're seven feet tall, but you're, that doesn't even come up to this bookshelf. I mean, so how, together, what can we make of this? What well, um, what sort of examples do you think you could give um, if you were to explain um? I guess how you would work with someone who um, has gender issues um, and they also have autism. Yeah, I, I'd say a starting point would be trying to sort out what the person's goals when they're initially coming to see you are. I mean, how they're framing what they are seeking help, advice, guidance, information, what they're, I mean, at a very fundamental level is are what they're asking for in some ways to change what they're dealing with whether it's mood issues or gender issues or, or change how they're perceived, or is it an acceptance of helping them be more comfortable with how they see themselves? So, I mean, and, I don't know if that was too general or you, you asked for examples, so I can... You you did a perfect job answering that question. Um, I appreciate that. Um, and I I also want to 
apologize if I if I'm asking any um, questions that are um, too too easy, too difficult, or um, just not good questions at all. Yeah, I'd say there's not too many questions that aren't good questions, but if I, oh. you know, I'll, I'll try to go into at more length if I think it was just scratching the surface, and if I'm not understanding, I'll try to ask for a redirection, but I think we're Okay. Um, thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. Um, did you do any... I'm gonna um, shift gears here and ask a, a different kind of question. Um, mm -hmm. Did you do any celebration after you graduated from from college? And um, how excited were you when you got that diploma and you finally were able to? You finally did not have to go to college anymore. Um, I mean, one is I was in college a really long time. So again, after undergraduate, in a combined MD PhD program. So I was had eight more years of college, and then you could call residency training four more years of training before you're out in the real world. And personally, I often used to joke that being in school was a lot better than having to work for a living. I mean, it turns out I actually really like what I'm doing, so I enjoy working for a living. Um, so it was, so I was in school a long time. And I, you're sort of asking, I guess, more personally. My own personal style is actually I'm fairly low key and, and I, you know, I was, and I guess for me, college seemed more just a logical progression. You know, I knew I was smart enough and if I put in this work, I would have a degree at the end of it, whether it was an undergraduate degree or then a medical degree and a PhD degree. And probably I got more excited when I, you know, finished my first marathon or did something else that maybe was harder for me to imagine or know that I'd actually be able to do. So that I don't know if I'm oversharing my own personality, but that would, that, that I guess answers. Do you, or... do you ever take time for yourself? And um, uh, do you ever take time to celebrate accomplishments you make? Or, uh, or um, do you truly enjoy um, um, learning and um, do you have 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 fun when you um, go to, go to work every day? Yeah, I'd, I'd say part of what attracted me to psychiatry rather than other branches of medicine is that I knew from what I saw early stages of training that that this would always be interesting. I knew that I wanted to work with people long term rather than just like seeing them for an emergency room visit, because I value long-term connections and getting to know people more deeply. Um, I actually, maybe as I'm getting older, my memory isn't quite as sharp, but I have lots of patients. I've, I've heard it enough people saying, 
you remember facts of my life better than I do. So I, I think I get a great deal of, you know, a sense of connection, a sense that I'm there in a meaningful way in people's lives. And it's always interesting. So I get much more positive feedback or positive nourishment for myself in the day-to-day -day than, you know, considering, you know, oh, I finished another year in this office. I, I'm thinking I need a celebration outside of work for that. But, but again, that that's just my style. Well, well, what would you say is the top four most rewarding um, milestones of your career um, um, and would you say that those milestones um, could be changed regarding the order um, um, meaning one being the most, two being the second, and so on, um, as you get older, or is it always going to be um, in the same order um, um, as, it, as, as it stands right now? Yeah, I, that question is probably the hardest one for me to answer, and again, I think going along with some of what I was saying with the day-to-day -day being so much more rewarding than, than bigger. So, I mean, if I would think of milestones, I might think of particular patients I worked with that had huge difficulties overcoming some obstacle or understanding something about themselves or understanding something about the world that I helped them with. I mean, in terms of my own life, I mean, I would, uh, the only thing I would think of as a milestone would be publishing my own book. So that would be one. I don't even, I mean, I guess, you know, finishing medical school may be an accomplishment or finishing my PhD work, but I, I don't even see them as milestones. Again, that, that may be a strange way of not looking at things, but I don't. Yeah, I, I, my answer, I guess, would be I have one milestone in my professional life, and that would be my book. It'd be great if it was doing better work, better business, and selling more copies than I have so far. Um, I'd say milestones in the rest of my life, probably becoming a father, be the biggest one there. What? Um... What book selling platforms do you use, and um, how um, how would a, um, anyone who is interested in your book go to or? Yeah. So, so my book is called Recognizing Adult ADHD. What Donald Trump. What Donald Trump can teach us about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. It's available on Amazon as an hardback, as a paperback, as an audiobook, and as a Kindle. 
It's on Barnes and Noble. It's available through lots of independent bookstores for people who want to avoid the Amazon system. Um, I also have a blog on medium.com where actually this week is going to be my 52nd week in a row. So exactly a year I've, I've written a different topic of about ADHD and Donald Trump each week for a year. Um, so it's out there. And I, I also have a Facebook channel, Dr. John Cruz, where for the last since since April, sometimes during the, the COVID shutdown, I've been trying to do a Facebook Live where I sort of talk for 20 minutes on some topic. Some of them initially were how to deal with ADHD when you're working from home during sheltering in place. Some of them have been how do you try to schedule your life when you're in this atmosphere, how to get to bed on time because people with ADHD have difficulty with that. And then in the last month or two, more of the Facebook Lives have been um, aspects or chapters of the book. And if it's okay, I'll say a word or two more about the book. The main purpose of my book is to help people understand what ADHD is about, particularly adult ADHD. And what I've seen over the years is particularly younger people have a better, more comprehensive notion. But even there, many of them sort of treat it as Oh, it's just distractibility, like, oh, there's a squirrel, without really getting it, including people who have ADHD. As, you know, people who are in older years, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70, often have much less of an even clue that it's something that can exist in adults. So my idea, and it was given to me by patients, was, and as I go through in the book, Donald Trump clearly, robustly, he has other issues but it completely fulfills an ADHD diagnosis. And we see every day him blurting comments out, him gesturing hyperactivity, can't sit still, him not planning ahead, his, his doing a whole bunch of impulsive, inattentive, hyperactive ADD symptoms, and yet nobody's talking about his ADHD. So, but he's an example that everyone can understand. So. You know, 30 years ago when we had a more, you know, just a few TV stations and everyone watched and do the same things, you could talk about a sports hero, you could talk about a movie star, you could talk about a rock band, you know, singer, and most people would know who you're talking about. There are very few individuals right now, and Donald Trump is one of them, so he's a useful example because he's in front of our face every day, pretty much you, you can refer to him and people know what you're talking about. So. The main thrust of my book is using him as an example of ADHD to teach people what ADHD is like, what it's about. A second point of the book is to use ADHD to explain Mr. Trump. Because if you just focus on his narcissism or whether he's a sociopath, he doesn't make sense. Because a, a narcissist doesn't do things on a daily basis that embarrass himself, that undermine his successes, that make him look less intelligent, less powerful, less on track. A narcissist wants to look good, and this guy is continually undermining himself. That only makes sense if you understand the ADD component. Um, and then there's a third part to the book, and that's sort of a different angle, but it's talking about how social media and other factors in our 
modern lives are making our whole society more ADD-like. And Donald Trump is one of them. You know, he says so many strange things a day, whether you agree with him and are a fan or whether you are opposed to him and disagree, you're prompted to respond immediately because he's onto something else two minutes later. And that's not the news cycle we had, you know, under Obama or under any other president. He is pushing you to react quickly, react strongly, react emotionally rather than thinking, rather than putting in context, because he's off to something else in two more seconds. So that's probably enough self-promotion, but I'm happy to answer any other you know, questions about the book or my goals in dealing with it. And, and I could also talk about why I think there's barriers to getting that message out there. What would you say is the top three most difficult things people with ADHD have regarding communicating their their feelings and um, what what they're going through um, to people that to everyday people. So one is that many people with ADHD have a substantial element of impulsivity and they're prone to speaking what's at the top of their mind rather than giving a contextualized, well thought out explanation for what they're thinking. Um, and that can come across you know, with Trump as he's being authentic, he's calling it like it is, but it also runs the risk of it, it may only be partially how you feel or one aspect of how you feel. And it can often be so rude, so curt, so abrupt that it hurts people's feelings. Or as one person I worked with said, I was so happy when I learned I had ADHD because I thought I was just an asshole. Sorry for the language, but by that he meant, you know, he was he, he would blurt out whatever he felt without really taking the time being aware of how it could be impacting others. And he wasn't doing it to be mean. He wasn't doing it to be derogatory. And that wasn't always the full range of what he was thinking or feeling, but that's part of what came out. So that that is one of the three big barriers to communicating or to understand. I mean, and if someone doesn't understand that person has ADHD, they take it as just, you're being an asshole. You're just being a jerk. You're just being yeah. rude or abrasive or hostile when, again, they're just sharing quickly what is at the top of their mind. I'd, I'd say you know, inattentiveness is also another huge barrier to communication. And people with ADHD, I mean, some of them have developed skills where it looks like they're paying attention or they know enough to nod periodically during conversation, even if they've tuned it out. Um, but then when the other person realizes you didn't hear a word I was just saying, people's responses tend to take it personally. You know, you weren't listening because I'm not important enough to you. And again, without understanding that ADHD is there and that ADHD can make people inattentive, many people internalize it as the ADHD person being self-centered or non-caring or 
being a jerk in a different way than an abrupt and impulsive jerk, but being an inattentive jerk. Um, so again, just an awareness of the general population of what ADHD entails leads to lots of potential misinterpretations and problems. Um, so I, I hope that was answering the question you were asking. Yeah. Absolutely, I, I appreciate that. Um, how difficult would you say it is to figure out that you have ADHD on your own, um, than finding out through going to a professional diagnoser? So one, there's a couple. I mean, one is there's clearly some people who were, are aware of what they're doing. They may have gotten feedback from people and you know went and read online questionnaires on sites and were pretty convinced and sure they had ADHD before they came in. So that you know that's moderately common. But interestingly, I have people you know who come in their 20s, 30s, 40s who you know, come in thinking that they're primarily dealing with depression or dealing with anxiety. And during the evaluation, when I've seen a number of traits that certainly suggest ADHD, and I'll ask them, you know, has anyone else ever brought up ADHD? Some of these people say, oh, yeah, my friends joke about it all the time. I must have ADHD because I'm always late when we're meeting up and I'm ditzy. And, but I didn't really think that was a thing. So there's people who have sort of awareness of their ADHD, but in some ways, and again, I think this shifts to a younger generation, it, it's almost used so colloquially, so frequently in conversation. I mean, just like people use the phrase depressed whenever they feel sad. You know, yes, there are sad people who are depressed, but we also use the term just anything that, you know, oh, those wildfires, you depressed. I mean, they may have made you clinically depressed, or they just might have made you upset. And I think ADHD in some ways can be so commonly used that people don't really grasp when these people, my friends were joking with me, they weren't just joking that I had ADHD, they were sort of seriously pointing out, you have persistent problems in time management and inattentiveness and focusing and sustain, you know, staying on track and completing tasks, that this is something you need to pay attention to to deal with. And so that's one component of sort of missing it or not getting it. Another component um, is that ADHD itself makes it harder to be attentive to what, how you come across to others, to what you're doing, to um, how well you're keeping track of how well you're not keeping track, if that makes any sense. So that's a big barrier. And another barrier, and again, I think there's a age, is just many people, you know, in the last few years, I've dealt with some people who are 70 or 80. Actually, the best example I can think of, I got an email a few weeks ago from a guy. He's 80 years old. He said, I found your book because I was looking at on Amazon under, it was just randomly searching people who have MDs and PhDs who've written books. And he came across my book. He saw that it might have something to do with Trump. It didn't even register it had ADHD in the title. 
And he started reading it and he kept saying, oh, that's me. Oh, that's me. Oh, I do that too. I do that too. And he said, you know, 40 years ago, he had sort of investigated ADHD, wondering if he had it. But, you know, the, the narrow definition or description or the, you know, this is a guy who had a functional career, who had a successful marriage, but he had very clearly, you know, speaks in tangents. He goes off on meanders in conversations. He interrupts others. He has some trouble. So, so anyway, what I was getting at is that even though he had tried to investigate it, I mean, his, he didn't really get what ADHD was. And here he was, you know, now at the age of 80, finally realizing that this is a accurate, helpful description of a lot of his own behavior. But so many people in, in his age group, you know, don't even, doesn't even occur to them that an adult could have ADHD. And so. your, um, uh, in your um, circle of um, profession, has ha have you heard or have you researched anyone ever say that denial is a acronym and it stands for don't even know I am lying does first of all, does that make sense to you and second of all um um do you believe that to be true and um would would that be a successful um way to to describe um someone who who is in denial so i mean the the one part that i have a little bit of an issue with is is sort of the concept that denial equates to lying and i like to use the term lying pretty specifically to mean someone who is saying something that they know is false to intentionally deceive others. What and about if they're lying to themselves? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think that, that it's important distinction, particularly, I'll, I'll pick on Donald Trump because he's an easy example. I mean, there's a, you know, everyone who tunes in knows the fact checkers have caught him lying or telling untruths, you know, 20,000 times in office. And I think it's only a very narrow subset of those are lies. And again, a bigger subset are his ADD that he just blurts out whatever's at the top of his head. So again, with ADD, there's some people who don't really get how they come across to others. So with them, it's not denial. With others, it may be more like denial that they've had it pointed out and they want to minimize it or they can acknowledge it but not grasp it. Um, So I, I just think it's a, a concept we need to be careful with in terms of yeah. how much awareness. And, and the other, getting back to sort of recognizing ADHD, one of my most interesting things, and part of why Trump is such a wonderful example, is, is again, people are talking about Donald Trump's mental health 
all of the time. They're talking about what a narcissist is. They're talking about why it is this or that. And yet, almost nobody else, there's a few other people who have mentioned or talked about his ADHD, but almost nobody else does. And yet, it is so there, it's so severe. So a, a good example of this is a year ago, the last time the American Psychiatric Association had a you know, a live meeting with lots of people present, and I talked to lots of people who I think are bright, intelligent psychiatrists. And I told them my book was just about to come out, what my book is about. And at least half of them said, oh my God, you're right, the guy has ADHD. I never thought about it because I was so focused on his narcissism. So part of it is that if other symptoms are more flashy or get more attention or seem more problematic. So again, I've seen people who thought that all they were dealing with all their life was depression or thought that all they were dealing with was anxiety. They've learned to frame or think of their own problems with a framework that I think is an inaccurate one. I mean, yes, there are people with depression and no ADHD, but there are also people out there whose primary problem is ADHD and it's the depression is secondary or it's not even depression, but it's been confused with depression or anxiety or other disorders. Um, kind of like having tunnel vision, right? I didn't quite catch the last word there. Kind of. I, I said kind of like having some tunnel vision where you yeah. only, you only view, view things um, through Blind. a yeah. Um, would would you do you think that that's a effective and efficient way to ex explain um, what, what we're talking about now? Yeah, I think it's a good, I mean, people tend to see what they're looking for, what they're expecting to see. And, and again, Donald Trump is, you know, he, he, it's blatantly there as a, it's, and, and people list this, you know, they talk about how chaotic he is, they talk about, and yet, you know, there's a book by a psychiatrist who, you know, did evaluations for the CIA. He did mental health assessments of world leaders. So, and he talks about Donald Trump for 200 plus pages and never mentions ADHD. You know, there's another psychiatrist who's a psychoanalyst who wrote a book called Trump on the Couch. And he goes on and on about you know, because analysts are more focused on how your mother and your father and what they did to you and how they shaped your personality, which I think there's, you know, those are big and real important factors. But he goes on for pages and pages. You know, I can understand why he's a bully. I can understand why he's sexist. I can understand why he's cruel in certain, certain situations. But then this, this author keeps saying, but I, I, I really can't figure out why this guy is so horrible in so many different directions and dimensions. And what he's talking about is ADHD, but his tunnel vision is on, again, mother-father influences and the psychoanalytic approach. And, you know, his, his tunnel vision didn't let him see the ADHD that would have explained why Trump is so sort of aberrant in so many different ways. How, um... Would you say that it's it takes a certain kind of person to have a a 
ability to um, think outside the box of of different um, narratives and um, how um, um, how and why um, a lot of people, I guess, view things, and if so, why do you believe, why do you think that um, it's so difficult to have, to, to have that skill I, of thinking outside I, the box? Question. I, I think one part, a, a huge part of it is that humans are social animals. We rely on others. We need each other. We want to be with each other. And if you take a novel stand, if you're standing apart from everyone, you are alone. That, that is not a comfortable position for most human beings to be in. Um, so that's, I mean, we see, you know, in the political realm, people form camps, people form groups to, to protect themselves so they don't feel alone in the world. And that's part of why they cling so strongly to certain identities they have, even when there's sort of huge amounts of evidence that may suggest that they are wrong or mistaken about it. It's so scary to leave your group or let go of it, but it's hard not to. So I think that's one huge element of why Taking us, I mean, so so there's two different aspects. I mean, one is actually seeing something differently than others do, and two is being bold enough to say it when you see it. Um, so those are two different aspects. I mean, one is I think humans probably do have some propensity to think alike. You know, they they see things similarly, and it may be people who are neurodivergent, whether they're autistic, whether they're ADHD, whether left-handedness, whether they're gay, whether they're a minority in other ways, often that minority status comes from, I mean, is connected with, I'd say, experiencing the world a little differently, being in the world a little differently, probably having function a little differently, may help make you more aware of other differences or that the monolithic sort of conformist stance that may have alternatives to it. So, I hope that answered your question. Definitely. Um, thank you so much. I, I appreciate that. Um, and you don't hesitate to, 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 to let me know um, if you have to go. Um, um, yeah, probably in a few minutes we should wrap things up. Cause yeah. Um, I really appreciated the time so far that you've asked good and thoughtful questions, and I hope I've been able to add something to my perspective. You've done a fantastic job. Um, I I appreciate your time. Um, I guess my second to last question to you is do you think the more time that that passes 
that more we will get to better understand each other? Or do you think the more time that passes, the less we will get to know and understand each other? I mean, I, I think by nature, even though I'm not very, you know, excitable or emotional, I, I tend to be an optimist. So I think the overall trend is the more information gets out, the more people can share and empathize with each other. But I, but I don't think it's a linear process. So I, and, and I haven't said it explicitly before. I'm gay, um, so I'll, I'll sort of tie into the gay issue. There is. You know, almost 100 years ago in Germany, there was, you know, a flowering of a realization that people could be gay. They didn't use the word then. It was about when the word homosexual came to be. And, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, people started writing about it, talking about it, you know, particularly in the 20s and 30s, there was, you know, not just in the gay or homosexual community, there was growing acceptance, understanding, tolerance of, and then, and, and the Nazis weren't the only force. I mean, the Nazis, so early on, they weren't just killing Jews and gay people and gypsies were, you know, two of their other top targets, but that shut the whole door on not just, you know, acceptance by the Nazis, but acceptance by society in general, but it put a halt to lots of research and studying and publication of it. it made you know lots of psychiatric and psychoanalytic organizations throughout the world much more conservative. Um, so there's been a resurgence of understanding of acceptability, but it you know in the last three decades, but it hasn't been a unilaterally every step getting better and better and better. And, you know, you've seen even with backlashes from the Trump administration, attempts to limit transgender rights, to allow more religious organizations to impose their religious views on the rights of gay and lesbian Americans to be who they are. So I do think we're progressing to a greater understanding of human diversity, whether it's autism, whether it's racial differences, whether it's gender identity issues, whether it's sexual orientation issues. Um, but there will, for the foreseeable future, be reactionary forces who want to hold on to the status quo, who will push back, um, who will promote their own agendas, who will promote their own ignorance. I mean, I tend to think and this is more as a scientist rather than a polit you know, someone who's interested in politics and policy and mental health. But as a scientist, I, I would like to believe that in the long run, truths that the, the truth you can't hide and the truth will come out. And you can block it, you can obscure it, but in the end that there is a power to having the, the truth. So so that's the source of my optimism there. I totally agree with you there. Um, do you have any final words of, an, of encouragement, um, wisdom, and advice you want to give to the listeners? Um, and also, if if anyone wanted to, or rather, do you offer services 
And if so, how would they receive services from you? Um, so answer the, the second part because it's easy. Um, so I've been busy with my own personal psychiatric practice for decades. Um, one of the other things to say is when Donald Trump came into office, even measurably surveys of Republicans got more anxious. So I've been really busy the last four years. And with COVID, I've been busier than I've been since I started practice. So I am actively not trying to build my practice. I, you know, I love the work I do, but I, I, every week I have to tell people about taking new patients. Um, I'd love my writing to get a bigger audience and, you know, my book to sell more. So you know, in terms of services, that's the service I'm trying to push or promote. In terms of wisdom, I guess what I'd say is it's, you can't underestimate just perse persevering and keep coming back to things day after day after day. I mean, one of the, the wonders of social media is it's given so many more people access, so many more people a voice to say what they want to say. But the flip side of that is so much more competition for people's eyeballs and their ears and their brain and their attentional space. So it's really hard to get who you think your audience might be to listen or hear, but I think you're doing good work and the longer you stick with it, the more likely you are to keep gaining success and followers and people who put in the time to listen to your message and understand your message and support your message. So that and be... Do you have any questions that you would like to ask me? Yeah, at, at the risk of, of ending abruptly, I, I, I'd say no at this time. I mean, I, I, can, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak here. Again, I think you're providing a good service for the world, and hopefully it's a good service, you know, that you're getting some personal fulfillment and benefit from it as well. And I really... I'm not good at lying or exaggerating. I've, I've certainly enjoyed this hour more than I thought or knew I would at the beginning of it. So thank you again. Yeah. Um, I want you to know that I will definitely do whatever I can to get the word out regarding your book. Um, I, I think that um, you... Um, I think that it's important for a lot of people more so than up to this point know about um, ADHD. And I, I, based on um, our conversation up to this point and based on the research I've done about you, I feel like you're, you're very knowledgeable and um, so I, I feel like it's important for more people to um, be in, in, informed through your um, perspectives. And so I'm going to do what, what, what I can to um, encourage people to purchase your book. Thanks. I really appreciate that. And I will... Put the good word out for your website and your efforts as well.
Thank you. Um, it was um, great talking. Great talking to you. And um, do you want a, a link to this episode after I'm done with it? Yeah, I'd really appreciate it, and I will post it on my Facebook site so more people can learn about you, and and hopefully we'll get the word out that way. Excellent. Um, uh, I hope you have a wonderful evening. Thanks. You too. Bye. I'm not sure how to sign out here, but...